0: Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at fisheriespod. And if you want to support the show, you can support us through Patreon. You can make either a recurring or a one-time donation to help pay for various parts of the show. You can also purchase Fisheries Pod Swag on the Teespring store. That's hoodies, stickers, face masks, you name it. So check it out. My name is Anders Halverson, and our guest today is Jack Stack. Jack has a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's degree from Michigan State, and he's currently a PhD student at Virginia Tech, where he studies paleontology and phylogenetics of the ray-finned fishes. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thank you for having
1: me. I'm, I'm really excited. I love talking about fish.
0: So do I. So let's get started with a nice, easy question. What's the big deal with fossils? I mean, they're cool to look at and everything, but it's not like they've shaped our current worldview or, or done anything important like that, right?
1: <laughs> so I actually get that a lot. I've, I've had people say like, well, why do we care about fossil fish? They're all dead. Like, what can we learn from them? And I think the really important thing to understand is that fossils give us a perspective on the history of the animals that we see today. The animals that we look at, the animals that we study are this minuscule slice of the entire history of life. And they do not give us context on how we got to this point. Like as a paleontologist, my entire research program and all of the things I'm interested in is understanding the how of, of fishes today. Like, how did they get to be so diverse? How are some groups so such a small part of the diversity? How are some groups so crazy diverse? Like we have a couple of groups of fishes today that there are tens of thousands of species, they're everywhere. And then we have a couple of groups that are very, a very small part and when we look at the history those ain't, those small part groups used to be way more diverse i guess uh, guess what i would say is that fossils have very much shaped our view of life on earth today whether it's the idea of extinction and the and we know from fossils right that the groups we have today won't necessarily be here forever for instance for those who are interested in fishes the chinese paddlefish is an excellent example of extinction And it's one of, if you look at the history of fish, there is this long history of these groups being very diverse and then sort of becoming these relics in freshwater environments, large bodied, very specialized. And over time, when their environments go away, they go extinct and those groups are lost forever. So something, uh, an, an example of what paleontology can teach us is that these large bodied, interesting animals like sturgeon, like paddlefish, like gar are things that we have to protect very carefully because they are some of the last remnants of these once very diverse groups that that form important parts of living ecosystems, but are very much at risk because of how specialized they are. Uh, And there's other things we can talk about, but that's just one example of how the fossil record tells us about how the future might play out because we can study what has happened in the past essentially. And yeah that that that's what I would say is the overarching goal of my research. Fossils are cool. I mean I would I would be lying if I said that part of my motivation for being a paleontologist and a writer and a teacher is that I just simply do love fossils and fish. But the reason I study fishes and the reason I study fossils is I truly think that we can learn really important lessons as a society for how we can prepare for the future and how we can understand ourselves. And I could talk forever about how fishes, how these weird like relictual freshwater fishes are really important for developmental science, uh, how they're important for the food web. There's all sorts of places that fish are important, but really understanding the past to prepare for the future and to make decisions in the present is what
0: my goal is. Well, that was... Such a great answer that I think we can just sort of end the interview now and call the podcast done.
1: <laughs> oh, I haven't even gotten to talk about cool fossil, weak, really weird fossil fish that I study yet.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's get going on that then. So before yeah. we go there, can you give us a sort of a, a history of the evolution of fishes? And Ooh, yeah, you can give us a little, you can use the geological timescale only if you add in the um, how many million years ago each period okay. or era was. Yeah.
1: No, that's a good point because I, I mean, most people don't know it off the top of their head. I don't know the dates off the top of my head. So what's interesting about fish history is that we actually don't really have fossils from the very beginning of what we would call fishes. So uh, for the, in the geologic time scale in the history of the earth is a destructive process. Just like human history, earth history is destructive. And as history progresses, Things that are older become destroyed. So you'll, if you study human history, you know that as you go farther back in time, we have fewer documents, fewer people that were around, all that type of stuff. The same thing applies to the history of life. So the very beginning, we actually have very little information. But what's helpful is that we have organisms that are alive today that can teach us a little bit about what the earliest history might have looked like. The very first fishes and the very first things that look could be anything like fishes. These are the animals. They don't have a head. They don't have a bony skeleton. They don't even have jaws. But the first little animals with a backbone-like structure, with a head-like thing, with um, with uh, w- with an almost a brain-type nervous system, probably would have looked like something called a tunicate. Now, an adult tunicate is essentially a filter feeding bag that is attached to the substrate of a, of a marine environment. You might say, well, that doesn't look anything like a fish. What are you talking about? Well, the larval tunicate, but prior to its adult stage, has this free swimming form that moves around and eventually finds a place to settle and become that uh, attached organism basically so that we don't have fossils of what the earliest ancestors of fish might have looked like but the tunicate larva tells us probably had these probably the earliest things that are in the evolutionary line leading to fish probably didn't have jaws didn't have brains but they might have had this stiff structure in their body that would have allowed them to swim through the water and find a better place to filter feed as adults that's probably the earliest thing. That's the, that's where we're going to start with, right? We're starting with this really small, soft-bodied animal, right? Uh, Because this is really important to remember that the fish we have today are very specialized animals that have had hundreds of millions of years of evolution to get to where they are today. The same is true with tunicates, but they have this sort of uh, imprint of their history in their life history. Now, the the very first fossils that we have are these soft-bodied animals. They have this stiff rod of cartilage in their back, and that uh, essentially probably functioned as a support for muscles to pull the body back and forth and to allow the animal to propel itself through the water. That is where we really start in um, at the beginning of fish history. Now
0: as we move towards the present. Now, where are we with those fossils? What, how, how long ago? So what that's era? the
1: type of thing that's found in the Burgess Shale. Uh, so we're talking probably 500 or so million years ago. So the Cambrian
0: explosion.
1: Yeah, that type of thing. So the first, these aren't, so defining what a fish is, is difficult. These are the first sort of animals on the evolutionary line to fish. They don't have skulls. They don't have backbones. They don't have these bony supported fins. They have a tail. They don't really have fins yet. They don't, if you look at like the fish on the poster behind you, right, have all of these really wonderful fins that they use to propel themselves through the water really well. You don't have that yet in the Cambrian. 500 million years ago, you don't have anything that looks like a trout. What you have is basically a worm looking thing with the tail. But if you were to look closer or it have this stiff bony rod, or not bony, cartilaginous rod supporting its body, It would have had sensory organs concentrated near the front of this body, right? And when we look at these things in the fossil record, they do resemble things like tunicate larvae, but they're not quite fish yet. It gets really interesting around 400 or so million years ago, I believe, uh, where you start to get fish with or uh, you start to get things that look like fish. There is a long period in the history of of the Earth uh, where we don't really, we have these oceans with these beautiful assemblages of life, mostly invertebrates though. You have cephalopods, you have these giant swimming sea scorpions, you have all of this life living in the oceans in, in uh, without any fish. So that, what that does tell us is that fish aren't necessarily the only part of marine life. They do, there is a period of earth history where we have, where they're not very diverse yet. Uh, but Essentially, before we get jaws, we start to have fish with bony skeletons and with fins. Fins start to appear, I'm trying to remember, I think it's like 400 or so million years ago, where you start to see lots of uh, bony fishes. And these are fish with external bony skeletons, these big thick shields on their heads. And these are what we fish paleontologists refer to as jawless fishes. Uh, there are all of these weird fish that start to appear again around four, I think it's a little over 400 million years ago in the fossil record. So this between the Cambrian, the, the Ordovician. Devonian. Uh, Ordovician and Silurian is when the okay. stuff starts to appear. Yeah. The Devonian okay. is really interesting too. Okay. Um, but essentially, right. You go from these weird worm-like animals to that. You start to get these things with bone. You start to see eyes. One really interesting feature that starts to appear In these early jawless fishes, are actually complex sensory systems on the external part of the body. So, if you've ever looked at a fish, you might see that there's a line running down a lot of these fish. And it's like, did someone draw that on there? What's going on? So, that's called the lateral line system. The lateral line system senses movement in the water, it's a mechanosensory system. And it's really important in social behavior, in finding prey, avoiding predators. All these really important behaviors build off of fish's ability to sense movement in the water around it. And very early in the history of fishes, we start to see structures like that. This is before these fish have teeth. It's before they have a lot of complex fins. The first fins that show up, by the way, tail's the first one. And then you get the paired fins at the front. So those are the things that are evolutionarily correlated to uh, your arms, basically. Those show up. So just to set the stage, right, we have all of these fish. They They don't have jaws yet, but they do have bone. And they can sense the things that are going on around them. They can sense movement. They have eyes. And essentially what happens in fish history is that these there, for tens of millions of years most of the fish that we have were jawless there's it's probably the chapter that is the least understood and needs the most study huh. is the fact that for tens of millions of years these fish without jaws do pretty well but what, now,
0: happened, what is a what's a modern day ad, analog for these jawless I mean, fishes of the I think term? a
1: lamprey would probably be a good analog so people might be familiar with lamprey and hagfish these are lamprey live mostly lamprey are anadromous right they move between fresh and yeah. salt water i yeah. think and then hagfish are marine deep marine uh, scavengers they are actually they i mean we could talk about them for a whole podcast they're very interesting but they do are also do not have jaws and they have a deep evolutionary lineage probably leading back to this great I call it the lost kingdom of fishes. These like weird jawless fish that were everywhere. They were all over the world. They have um, really weird looking heads. They have like these bony projections going everywhere. They're a really interesting group and we know very little about them. I would, but essentially what we know is that they spread around the world. They did not have bony supports in their mouths. When I keep saying, I keep saying jaws and I want to be really clear about something. A mouth is the opening at the front of the head that can allow the passage in of water for breathing or food. Right, that has existed since the beginning of uh, of of the of this evolutionary line. Jaws are these bony or cartilaginous supports for the mouth uh, that don't appear until tens of millions of years into the history of fishes. Hmm. That is something that we understand a little bit better because that has long been considered a really important feature because what we see in the fossil record is that jaws appear and then jawless or jawed fishes are everywhere. These fish have this, basically they have this new toy, this new new feature Mm -hmm. that we think allowed them to breathe and feed more efficiently and probably on a greater variety of things than their jawless counterparts. This is not so. A lot of times, evolution is cast in these very violent terms, like war or arms race. Uh That's not necessarily the case. These fishes didn't have to be in conflict with each other. It's entirely possible that over millions of years, fish that had jaws simply out compete or were more efficient at breathing, more efficient at eating, and could eat more things than their jawless compatriots. And over time, they became more diverse as jawless fishes perhaps uh, maybe suffered more a mass extinction at the end of the Ordovician period. And I apologize, I don't remember exactly when that was. But essentially, when we start to get into the beginnings of the Devonian period, which is approximately, I think, 380 or so million years ago is kind of middle Devonian, so it's right in the center is when jawless fish start to really disappear. We don't see very many of them. And by the way, lamprey and hagfish do not have a bony skeleton. Uh, they, lamprey have keratinous teeth-like structures surrounding their mouth, but they don't have bone. Hmm. Uh, so we know very little about their fossil record. So they weren't their preserved hist- very well. They do not get preserved very well. History okay. is a destructive process and it favors animals that have bony skeletons. So if you ever go to a natural history museum, you're probably going to see lots of wood, teeth, shells. Pollen is actually something that preserves very well. You're probably not going to see a lot of it on display because it's really small, right? But the – Yeah.
0: No, that's a good point. So our our whole understanding, the way we look at the evolutionary, the phylogenetic tree, is it's it's skewed towards those organisms with bones, even though those organisms without bones – Probably a huge component uh, of early life. Exactly.
1: And another caveat is that we are also biased towards environments that tend to preserve fossils, right? Mm-hmm. So these, We're talking about environments with water, right? This is where sediments are accumulating and can preserve fossil animals. So we don't have, we don't know very much about probably fish that lived in high Alpine lakes mm-hmm. because those are less likely to be preserved than fish that lived in swamps, fish that lived in coral reefs that lived in these sort of uh, lagoon environments where you have this quiet deposition needed to preserve animal Mm -hmm. skeletons, right? So everything I'm saying, it's really important to understand. And paleontologists understand this, and we have to take this into account any time we're doing any kind of study of the history of any group, is that the fossil record is biased towards environments that are likely to preserve fossils, in towards animals that are likely to be preserved and again those are animals that are either really abundant or happen to have really hard skeletons or other structures uh, but the devonian it's often called the age of fishes i actually mm-hmm. think that the modern day should be called the age of fishes mm-hmm. because there are more species of fish than there are mammals reptiles amphibians and birds combined um, yep, they, the, it's it's crazy there are so many of them and there are lots of fish species that we have not discovered because, again, they live underwater, right? And we're less likely to encounter them than, say, mammals, right? right? If you want to, just if you want to find, this is an aside, but if you want to find a new species of mammal, good luck. People do it, but it's hard to do. If you want to find a new species of fish, someone just described it, uh, bowfin. Are actually, they think there are two species of bowfin instead of just one, and that's something that lives in Eastern North America, right? And it's not mm-hmm. t- terribly hard to access. But the Devonian is when jawed fishes go crazy. And they're one of my favorite groups of fish. The one that I started working on actually, when I was in high school, are the fish called the placoderms. Mm-hmm. Now, placoderms have this th- these thick bony armor plates covering their head and their trunk. A really good example is Dunkleosteus, which is sort of, mm-hmm. Uh, Swam into popular culture over the last couple of years, and I'm very happy about that. But Dunkleosteus is one of hundreds of species of these fish that appear in the fossil record in the Devonian. Again, they appear before 380 million years ago, but I'm going to say 380 million years because those are the ones I've collected, and that's when they really start to become very common. They're all over the world. You find I've talked to people who have found placoderms in Antarctica. You can find them on both poles. Well, not on the poles, but you can find them near both poles, Antarctica, North Pole. You can find them in Michigan, where I grew up. You can find them in Africa. You can find them in Australia. They're everywhere. And they're very diverse. You have these large predatory things like like Dunkleosteus. Dunkleosteus is actually not the largest placoderm. There's a placoderm called titanichthys, which did not have really sharp tooth plates. And recent research actually suggests it was probably kind Of, like, a baleen feeder, maybe like a basking shark hmm. or a whale shark. Very interesting that that niche seems to have started all the way in the Devonian. Um, but we have lots of different placoderms running around with armored plates and jaws, just going crazy everywhere.
0: Okay, now have we at this point we're in the middle of the Devonian here? Mm. Um, have the um lobe fin fishes split off yeah. from the um, yes. A rafin fishes. Well, and and what about the chondrichthys and the osteichthyes? What's our yeah. what's our phylogeny here?
1: So all of those things do exist in the Devonian. So one reason that the Devonian is called the age of fishes, and one really good argument I think for that, is that all the major groups of fishes are kind of there in the Devonian. This is really the only time in their history, we have all these different groups existing together. So cartilaginous fishes are around in the Devonian. I think they start showing up in the Silurian is really where you start to see lots of good fossils of cartilaginous fishes. I'm not as much an expert on them. They are their own. They're a very interesting group in and of themselves, and they don't have bony skeletons as much, so they're harder to study. But cartilaginous fishes are around. They're things like Cladoselache, which looks a lot like a modern shark, has some differences. They have these spines on their fins and such. Those things are running around. Rayfin fishes are around. They pretty much all look the same, except for, well, there's one that looks different, but we, you know, we don't have all day. Uh lobefin fishes have split from Rayfin fishes. We think that happened in the Silurian period, so tens of millions of years previously, but we don't have as good fossils uh, of that split. We basically all the major players are there in the Devonian. Okay. But the the ones that are major players now particularly ray fin fishes, are not nearly as diverse as the placoderms, and there's a lot of lobe fin fishes that are these big predatory forms, both in freshwater and marine environments. Uh, lungfish are around, they're doing really well in the Devonian, a lot of them are marine. Um, but yeah, the Devonian is this time, to, to sort of picture it, right, imagine all the different fish groups are kind of together in the same, a lot of them in the same environments uh, in the Devonian. This is kind okay. of everything that happens from the Devonian forward really is starting to take us to what we have today. And the situation today is that almost all the fishes that we have around are rafin fishes. There are a few, there are cartilaginous fishes that are pretty diverse. It's a few thousand of those. You have a, a handful of things like lungfish and coelacanths, um, but really most of what we have today are rafin
0: fish. And when you, when you mentioned the lungfish and the coelacanths, you're saying those are the lobe finned fishes.
1: Yes, exactly. Same. Now, so
0: what's now just to um, jump forward again to the present day, um, we also are lobe finned fishes, correct? correct. So, yeah. so how weird that we've only got a few actual of us swimming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- what I'm saying by that is the lobe finned fishes gave rise to the tetrapods, which is the amphibians and the reptiles and the mammals of the world. So yeah. what happened to these lobe finned fishes? They just got sick of the ocean and said, we're out of here. We're colonizing the earth.
1: Yeah. So the, the, really the big event, I would say in earth history that changed the trajectory to what we have today is a mass extinction that occurred. I'm trying to remember exactly th- I think 350 or so million years ago, called the Hangenberg crisis. The Hangenberg crisis is this mass extinction of vertebrates that happened. Essentially, we have these major climatic shifts around the world. We have black shale being deposited. This major crisis in the carbon cycle happens and 70% of vertebrates diversity goes extinct. The placoderms do not survive past that. And a lot of aquatic lobe fin fishes not tetrapods the tetrapods start to appear in the devonian things like tiktolic right Mm -hmm. that's when we start i I forgot to mention i'm so i'm so focused on the fish stuff i almost forgot that devonian also has uh the first tetrapods showing up sorry i've got fish on the brain Mm -hmm. tetrapods are cool they're not really my thing though right Right. um but essentially a lot of those sarcopter a lot of those aquatic lobe fin fishes go extinct in the Hangenberg bio-crisis. They're still around after. Uh, and there's a, there actually a lot of them are these large uh, sort of predatory forms in freshwater environments that persist for a long time. But for whatever reason, they're not particularly diverse. And let, let's, so biological success, quote unquote, can be defined in a lot of ways. And it's really important that we as human beings remember that we have many different ways that we can define success or however we have to be really careful about applying that to things that are in nature right and that are not people there is one avenue where we can say well this group has lots and lots of species therefore they are successful or we can say this group has persisted for a very long time therefore it is successful
0: even Mm -hmm. if there aren't a lot of species yep good point i I agree yep yeah
1: so those aquatic lobe and fishes have persisted for a long time, right? There are lungfish, there there are lungfish fossils from the Devonian of Michigan, and there are lungfish that live, you could go to the Field Museum of Natural History, for instance, or not the Field Museum, uh, Shed Aquarium, and you can see lungfish swimming around, right? That, you could define that as success. Now, I am really interested in diversification, so I tend to think about things being lots of species being really successful, but I just want to make it clear that you can define it in multiple ways and none of them are really scientifically wrong. Right. Okay. Good point. But, but to get back to lobefin fishes or the Hangenberg crisis, essentially they, they survive this mass extinction, but they don't tend to create lots of new species. They persist mostly as these really large really scary looking predators that have these enormous teeth. They're like bigger than T-Rex teeth. It's crazy. These things were huge river monsters of the Carboniferous period, but there aren't that many species of them. Uh, And they persist for a very
0: long time. And And is this the end of the um, Devonian?
1: Yeah. So this is the end of the Devonian is when uh, the Hangenberg crisis happens. Okay. And yeah. So the placoderms go extinct. Aquatic start uh, aquatic low fin fishes persist uh but don't diversify a lot. They're very successful in the in the uh roles that they play, but there aren't as many of them as Rayfin fishes and cartilaginous fishes, mm-hmm. which in the Carboniferous and the fossil record, we start to see lots and lots and lots of you know, fossils of these animals. Really good example is the bear gulch limestone of Montana. Bergold's limestone is what we call a Lagerstatten, which is a word that essentially means this fossil deposit that not only has lots of fossils, but has really well preserved fossils and typically a Lagerstatten has uh, examples of animals that aren't usually seen in the fossil record. So people may be familiar with the Burgess Shale, which is a Cambrian site uh, in the Canadian Rockies that preserves all these different Cambrian animals. The Bear Gulch is another Lagerstatten that is probably one of the most important for understanding the history of fishes. If you look at a Devonian Lagerstatten like the Cleveland Shale in Ohio, you see all of these Placoderms, you see aquatic sarcopterygians, you see a few rayfin fish, a few cartilaginous fish. You go a couple of tens of millions of years, Hangenberg crisis is in there. You look at the Bear Gulch, what do you see? All of these ray fin fishes and cartilaginous fishes, not only are there a lot of them, but there are a lot of different types of them. Uh-huh. Here's where an understanding of living fishes is so important to fish history. The way that a fish eats and the way that a fish lives is really dependent on the shape of its body and on its anatomy, right? Because it uses its mouth and its jaw to gather food. And it uses its body to propel itself through the water. So fish, different shapes of fish, can tell us a lot about how they are how they live in living fish. So in the fossil record, as a fish paleontologist, right, you look at Devonian Rayfin fish, they all look like streamlined little torpedoes, essentially. You get into the Carboniferous period and you start to see really deep-bodied dinner plate-shaped ones. And you see larger ones that look more like barracuda. And you see lots and lots and lots of little torpedo-shaped ones.
0: So there's this huge ball. diversification that occurs in exactly. the Carboniferous among yeah. the ray-finned fishes in particular and, and for whatever reason, fish, and too. among the Kondrick Yeah, but for, the, for whatever reason, not among the lobe-finned fishes.
1: Yeah. And the hypothesis that's been proposed, actually, by my undergraduate uh, research advisor, Lauren Salon, is the idea that ray-finned fishes may have had – with their smaller body size, they may have reproduced more quickly, had faster life cycles, and done better in the aftermath of the mass extinction. That is the proposed hypothesis. I think it's very interesting. I, there's more work I would like to do on that idea. But that—that's if I—if you—if you, know, you ask me why why did this one group or how did this one group do better in the aftermath of the mass extinction, I certainly think that's a very reasonable idea for
0: how Do works. we know what caused this mass extinction?
1: Yeah, so essentially the Hangenberg crisis is a series of climatic changes that happens at the end of the Devonian. So one sort of bone I have to pick with the way we talk about Earth history is we'll talk about these mass extinctions like it's a day, Mm -hmm. like it's one event. Often what happens in mass extinctions is you have a series of interconnected changes in the Earth system. And these changes cause environments to go away or to be uninhabit- uninhabitable, cause changes in temperature, changes in the atmosphere, and that causes organisms to go extinct. It's not, the, the one exception it can would take, be like- It
0: can take how long? A million years?
1: It can typically, so I believe the Hangenberg crisis happened over tens of thousands of years is my okay. understanding. Okay. Uh, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself the world expert on the Hangenberg crisis, but- I'm trying to remember. I wrote a term paper on this last year, actually. I'm trying to go back to that term paper, remember exactly what happened. But essentially for tens of millions of years, the Earth is very warm and there's no ice caps at the poles. And you have these shallow marine environments that are all over the place on what are today the continents, which is one reason why I found fossils of corals and fishes in mid-Michigan right mm-hmm. is that we have these shallow inland seas that were really good places for fish to live and things like placoderms okay my understanding is that there was a major shift in the carbon cycle most likely we're not exactly sure how the hangover crisis started but there is the idea that there was major uh, i'm trying to remember exactly what it is there, major were, there were fossil eruptions.
0: fuel. We were The fish were burning too many fossil fuels. <laughs> fish <are burning> too- <laughs> that,
1: that is an interesting hypothesis. That is not <laughs> one of the ones that's been proposed as of yet. Okay. The, the idea is essentially that there were these mid-ocean bridges that became really active, I believe. And that with this major uh, volcanic activity put a lot of carbon into the atmosphere and changed the carbon budget. And then we had more runoff. Uh, basically, more the temperature would have gone up, I believe. Uh, the thing that we see in the fossil record, though, is this major deposition of black shale all over the world. And this black shale signifies that we have this uh, massive blooms of algae in shallow marine environments. Hmm. Uh, and these algal blooms would have basically choked anything that lives in these environments. So, so these too shallow- much
0: nitrogen fertilizer on their lawns. <laughs>
1: Well, it's a similar, it's a similar process though, right? If you yep. So again, to be really clear, we're not exactly sure how the start of the Hangenberg crisis happened. It's one of, it is an open question in earth systems uh, research, but the, I, the hypothesis that I read and the one that I think has the most plausibility as of now is a major volcanic activity. Mm-hmm. I, I believe probably centered at mid-ocean ridges, Uh, Again, putting a lot of carbon to the atmosphere. uh, And that being what we see, what we have direct evidence of is these black shales, which tend to be these algal blooms choking these shallow marine environments, killing a lot of these uh, fishes that lived in these shallow marine environments. And this is where our bias in the fossil record has to come in, right? mm -hmm. Are the mass extinctions that we see in history truly global? Or the extinctions of the environments that are preserving the fossils Mm. that we're basing our understanding on. I get it. That is an important caveat to keep in mind. We don't know, for instance, if there were these in in living systems. We have all of these fish and animals that live in really deep ocean environments. We're not sure if those existed in the Devonian. Those may have been doing fine, right? We don't know. What we do know is that in shallow environments, particularly in shallow marine environments. We have these depositions of black shale, and we see a lot of group of species disappear. Okay. Blackoderms do not persist beyond the Hangenberg event. And I think it's we should remember that with prior to, or I said the Hangenberg event, the Hangenberg crisis, multiple events. And there's so that happens, and then there's other uh, environmental changes that go back and forth uh, two or three times. Essentially, black shales, and then there's a, a kind of a rebound effect. And then some smaller black shale deposition, and then things kind of return more to normal uh, in the carboniferous. Back to these sort of very warm uh, global temperatures. Um, okay. There's actually a brief period where there is a glacial deposition and such. and yeah. oh, right? I probably butchered that. I'll have to go back and read. I should have. Should have reread my term paper before this interview, but that's my mistake. All right.
0: Well, I'm worried that we are now uh 35 minutes or so into the podcast and we have we're still at 350 million years ago. This
1: is this is the danger of being a fish paleontologist, is you get very caught up. So to sort of speed to speed up a little bit. Late Paleozoic, we have lots and lots of fish. Most of these we believe are or most or all of these we believe are now extinct. Let's jump ahead a little bit. The Triassic. Let's talk about like 250 or so million years ago. Okay. In the Triassic period, we start to see the first fishes that we know are members of living groups. These are things like we start to see the first teleosts. Teleosts are the group of rafin fishes that are around today. Goldfish are teleosts, swordfish are teleosts, right? These are, this is the group of rafin fishes that is extraordinarily diverse. Mm-hmm. Molecular evidence, study of the study of teleost genomes suggests that their genome was actually duplicated early in their history. So most rafin fishes can be divided between teleosts tens of thousands of fish. People may be familiar with gar and bofin, which mm-hmm. are called blastians. Both of these groups existed in the Triassic. Both were doing pretty well. And what we think happened is that teleosts have this duplicated genome relative to us and relative to Gar and Bofin, which suggests that there is this fundamental molecular event in their evolution. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is really interesting. It's not something that you can see in the fossil record, obviously, because we don't have genomes from these early teleosts. But this is another example of why integrating knowledge from living fish, with fossil fish is really important.
0: So it would have um, been just one, one individual teleost, I suppose, the 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 eve of all the teleosts that had this um, genome duplication.
1: I'm not entirely. The, I, my understanding is that all living teleosts have this genome duplication, and there are some groups uh, uh, that have other duplications that have like duplications on top of duplications. So it might have happened more than once. Exactly. Okay. Uh, uh, and this is a, one hypothesis for why they are so diverse: is having this basically genetic material for more uh, diversification. But oh, essentially, the Triassic, yeah. the Triassic is a really interesting period because we start to see teleosts. We start to see lots of a group called the neopterygii. Now, a fundamental change that happened in the history of fishes is that we go from having fish that have a jaw that's really firmly attached to the rest of their skull to a jaw that becomes more detached from the rest of their skull. What do I mean by that? Well, imagine the difference between having a jaw that is fused to all the other bones in the rest of the skull, very immobile, versus connected much more loosely, allowing for greater movement of the jaw. And what this allows these early fishes to do these early teleosts and other neopterygians to do is to feed upon more types of things, more uh, more um, different sort of feeding ecologies, and it allows for a type of feeding called suction feeding. If you've ever watched a goldfish eat or a lot of these other different kinds of teleosts, they kind of push their mouth out and suck things back in. That type of feeding is very efficient and can be used for a lot of different kinds of food. Interesting. Um, okay. Early rafin fishes, we don't see that as much. Now, some of my research... Is working on some early rayfin fishes that may have had versions of suction feeding. Still working on that. That's a kind of a an extant area of research. That, that's, I should say, an ongoing area of research. But what we know is that a lot of the fish that we have that we have today do this suction feeding and they're very good at it. And it allows them to feed, we think, more efficiently and on more things than their extinct counterparts. Okay. And so the idea, a lot the common thread, I think, through fish history is that we see innovation and that innovation leads to greater uh, diversification and one form again of evolutionary quote unquote success. Mm-hmm. Um, and another interesting area is that these innovations occur in some groups, but not in others. So I'm trying to understand why some fish are so diverse today and why others are less diverse. Mm -hmm. We have things like Helios that have this jaw that they can, this really flexible jaw that they can suction feed with. And we have things like Gar that can't necessarily do that, but are really good ambush predators. They have this really long face, right? Mm -hmm. So we see the, so we see, um, uh, these really interesting innovations that are probably very important for being diverse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's keep moving up our, mm-hmm. our hundred to million years at a time here. So, yeah. so, or, or even up to the present day. So, so bring us up to, to the present day.
1: In the present day, ray fishes are definitely one of the most diverse group of vertebrates that has ever existed in the history of the earth. There are tens of thousands of species of rayfin fish that exist in essentially every aquatic habitat on Earth. Not the highest mountain peaks, but they get pretty darn close with some of the mountains in Chile all the way down to the Marianas Trench. They live in your fishbowl, they live in rivers, streams, they live in lakes, mountains, oceans, all sorts of places. They live everywhere, and there is a great ecological diversity. So there are not only lots of rayfin fishes. But they do lots of things, everything from bottom feeders to Mm -hmm. massive predators like sailfin and swordfish, all the way to uh, things that actually parasitize other fish's gills, or you have fish that have evolved to bite the eyes out of other fish, like in some Right. Right. So with that innovation of the more mobile upper jaw and also uh, something I didn't mention is they lose this really thick bony armor that they have. Early in their history, they're able to do a lot of things. Because they
0: lost the bony armor?
1: That's one idea. So this is a hypothesis that losing these really thick bony scales that you see in the fish that I study mostly allowed them to be more, to move more efficiently. Mm -hmm. In addition to that change in the jaw, uh, their fins also become lighter and we think more flexible. Um, Yeah, essentially we think that that was also important. So we have those fishes. But we also have the cartilaginous fish. And Mm -hmm. I've I've shown my bias here because cartilaginous fish are also extraordinarily interesting and diverse. They do a lot of really interesting things. Their physiology is amazing. Um, Cartilaginous fish also have become a very important group, both ecologically and for people. There aren't as many species of them, but they are also like race fishes. They do a lot of different things. You know, cartilaginous fish that bottom feed and crush shelled invertebrates. You have these enormous predators. Like, in, jaws is not a very good representation, in my opinion, of great white sharks. Uh, they are not, you know, they're not teddy bears, but they're not, like, going to try to kill you uh, for no reason, right? Yep. So whale sharks, which are these filter-feeding type animals, right? So we have these two groups that, beginning in the Hangenberg Crisis, They become these very diverse, very widespread, really integral parts of the ecosystem. Yeah. That's one aspect. We also have some groups that are relictual, meaning that they are relics of of these much more diverse groups in the past. I would say things like hagfish and lamprey fall into that boat. And by the way, when I say that these are relics, they're not worse in some way. There's nothing evolutionary wrong, evolutionarily wrong with them. They are successful in their own right because they have persisted right, and that they was are still around yeah. and surviving. Anybody who has tried to spend more than 12 hours living outside knows that surviving in nature is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So none of these groups are better or worse than the others. They are just different.
0: Well right, um, you could thanks. say that a sign of success is that you managed to persist all of this time without having to change yes, or evolve.
1: That is a very good point. And this is I actually really don't like the term living fossil because these animals are constantly undergoing evolution. Mm-hmm. But for where but their evolution has led them to a place where they're very good at a specific thing and they keep doing that because the mm-hmm whereas some groups have become extremely diverse. And the, the core of my of my research is trying to understand why groups like rafin fishes and cartilaginous fishes became very diverse and are everywhere and do all these things. And things like hagfish, lamprey, coelacanths, lungfish, um, don't do as many things and are, again, successful in their own right, but tend to just stay in their lane. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Um, so, Another, is there
0: more in terms of your research that that mm-hmm. we haven't covered in terms of the reasons the? And let's just stick with the ray finned fishes because yeah. I think that's your specialty. Um, the uh, in terms of your research, why why did they diversify so much? Are there other aspects that we should be aware of? And in particular, since a lot of people that listen to this podcast are fisheries scientists or fisheries mm-hmm. managers, that they should be aware of.
1: Yeah. So one really important, I think one area that my research would touch on is that, as I mentioned, I think a little bit earlier, one pattern in the history of fishes is that a subgroup will be very successful and then start to sort of retract into freshwater environments and become very specialized, but they don't diversify again. Those species are very vulnerable to extinction. An example is the Chinese paddlefish, but also sturgeon, gar, bowfin, Uh, Things like that are really important sort of leftovers of fish diversity. Uh, Things like gar and bowfin are actually very, very, very important for developmental studies and medical studies of things like zebrafish, which are one of the essential biological study systems in science. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one thing I would say, one takeaway for conservation and management is those groups that are very specialized and live in freshwater environments will require a lot of conservation focus. Uh, another thing about, um, uh, I'm trying to think. So your question is like, what, what have I not covered? And what is like important for living fisheries, fisheries, managements? And
0: yeah. And, and maybe, I mean, I think you've done a pretty darn good job of covering things. I just wanted to give you an opportunity if, if, if we'd missed something.
1: I think another interesting pattern in fish history that I haven't talked about as much is that fish repeat themselves. A lot of the fish that we have today in broad strokes look like the things that I study hundreds of millions of years ago. An example would be sturgeon are these deep, are these large bodied bottom feeders. They have this long nose with all these sensory structures on it. They're not very fast swimmers, but they're really good at using their nose to find things that are buried uh, in the environments that they live in. Three hundred million years ago, we have another rafin We have another fish that also has a long nose with sensory structures on it, called Tanyrhynchus. I worked on that for my undergraduate research, and essentially, the really cool pattern that I found is that the radiation in the uh, after the Hangenberg crisis has a lot of connections with the radiation that we have today. Not that the, not that Cheney is a relative of sturgeon, but that they evolved under similar pressures and came to a similar place. So I think something that fish history teaches us and something that the paleontology would teach us is that a lot of what we have in modern environments probably existed in some way in the past. And why that's important is that we can, even if the fish that we have in the past aren't the direct relatives of the ones we have today. They probably lived in similar ways. So the ways that they respond to changes in climate, the changes in habitat, to mass extinctions, to all these kinds of big events that we want to prepare for are probably going to be similar. So by studying how things like tannery might have responded to major volcanism or changes in the carbon cycle caused by putting a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, or increases in temperature, all these other types of things that we want to prepare for, can tell us how these fishes might today might respond over a long time scale over ten, over hundreds or even thousands of years
0: you know so, i was I was just a couple of months ago I interviewed another uh, guy eric Palkovacs, who mm-hmm. who also studies. Evolution in fishes only. He studies how it can occur within only a few generations and how that impacts management, among all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to get this very long, hundreds of millions of years perspective, and also have that extremely rapid evolution perspective.
1: Yeah, I, I love that kind of stuff too. Like yeah. the, the, I think I, I've I've read, I've read a lot about like studies on guppies and all sorts of really cool stuff that's very much influenced my research, but. I guess my point would be that even I think one major criticism that I've encountered is, well, these things are all extinct. How could they tell us about what we have today? Even if they're not the direct evolutionary relatives, they probably swam in similar ways, ate similar things, lived in similar environments, and uh, basically because they did that how they responded to these major changes in the earth system that we want to be able to prepare for, for the fish that we have that are really important for food, for sport, for our ecosystems, right? We want to be able to prepare for that by studying the history of their very distant relatives. We can better prepare for the future is, is one of the things. And so yeah.
0: so one of the, one of the questions, actually, the usually the last question I ask on these interviews is, if there's one point or principle that you could program into everyone's head, what would it be? And I think that you may have just answered that. With Yeah,
1: uh, uh, yeah I think so. I, I think it really is that history of anything, but particularly history of fishes, is essential for preparing for the future. I think the misconception that I've gotten, even from friends, is that the reason that I do this and people like me do this is because, you know, curiosity for curiosity's sake or because I like it. or And I do I do, do it because I love it, uh, and I would do it even if I wasn't paid to do it. But the reason that I am a fish paleontologist and a fish historian and the reason that paleontologists like me do our work is because we believe that studying the history of life of any group, particularly those that are essential for modern society, fish are so important for so many things. Did you know that what we feed chickens is mostly fish, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like, they're really important. And by studying their history, we can protect them and prepare for the future with them. Because we human society will require fish if we are to persist into the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so will the Earth system that we depend on. And by studying, the reason I study their history is to better prepare us for that future and to provide that knowledge uh, for conservation paleobiology, which I've touched on a little bit, talking about the Chinese Chinese paddlefish, but just in general for preparing for the future and for understanding how the fish we have today will, will change or will not change as the earth system changes. Both the changes that humans cause, things like climate change, and changes that happen, whether or not we cause them things like major volcanism, for instance. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a fantastic uh, way to, to wrap things up. I think we're getting close to being out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you, Jack. I would love to just chat with you all day about this stuff. <laughs> I, I, I too enjoy fossils and we never even got to talk about Nicholas Steno and the of oh, stones yeah, and right. the mountaintops and the ways that, uh, fossil fish have completely reshaped our worldview, but I don't think we have time to, we could spend another hour talking about yeah. Steno and Cuvier and and Hutton. But yeah,
1: in, yeah. in one sentence, uh, fish fossils tell us that fossils are ancient animals and not random mineral generations.
0: And that the world has been around for a lot longer than 10,000 years. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So if, People want to get in touch with you to yeah. learn more. What's the what what are the various ways they could follow you or contact yeah. you?
1: So I would say the best way to follow my work is my Twitter account, which is at Jack Stack9. I post a lot of stuff about I post cool fossils that I find and fossils that I look at. I talk about uh I talk a lot about fishes and fish research and what I'm doing and what other people are doing. It is also my personal account, so you get to know me personally as well. But that is probably the best way. Again, at JackStack9 uh, is the best way to get in touch with me if you have questions. I love talking about fish. So if you have a fish-related question, I'd love to answer it. But it's also where I talk about fossil fish research.
0: Great. And can I also put your email in the show notes if people want to send you an email?
1: Uh, sure. Hang on a second. My uh, Actually, I just recently created an email for this type of things. It is... Fish History at yahoo.com.
0: Oh, perfect. OK. Speaking of fossils, isn't Yahoo kind of a fossil?
1: No, <laughs> well, I, I have uh, an email for my graduate studies. Um, no, that's fine. Would,
0: I'll just put that one down there. I'm sure that'll
1: work. <laughs> that, um, that one's a dedicated fish history email. Okay, awesome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been an honor and a pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Well, you too. I really have enjoyed talking about fossils. I, I too have a um, love of of fossils and paleontology, and I also love fish. So it was a great, mm. fascinating conversation. So thanks again, Jack.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on Spotify or at the thefisheriespodcast.com and that you can support the podcast with a contribution through Patreon. You can make it either a one-time or a recurring contribution, and or you can get some cool fisheries pod swag at the Teespring store. I am Anders Halverson, and this has been Jack Stack on the Fisheries Podcast. Thank you for listening.